My guest in this episode is Professor Christy Muir. Christy's well known as the CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, one of Australia's best known charitable foundations. And Christy's also a professor of social policy in the business school at UNSW Sydney. In fact, prior to joining the Paul Ramsey Foundation, Christy was the CEO of the Centre for Social Impact at UNSW in Sydney. This is a really enjoyable conversation because we take a deep dive into what motivates and drives Christy in her work and her passions. And we hear a lot about um, values and culture and how that interacts with leadership and uh, running an organization as a CEO. And of course, we also hear about the origins of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, uh, what it's trying to do, and just as importantly, how it's trying to do it. And I think you'll really enjoy listening to Christy talk about that. So enjoy this episode. Welcome, Christy. How are you? I'm well, thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks very much for, for coming in. Um, as you know, the the, um, the name of the podcast is With Purpose. So I wanted to kick off by asking you, what role does purpose play in your work and um, how did you get to where you are today? Purpose has always played a big role in my work and my life. Uh, I uh, come from a family who strongly influenced by people like my grandmother on my um, paternal side. And she was somebody who had to finish school at the age of 14 because there was no money. She thought she was going to get a scholarship. Her appendix burst on the day of the scholarship exams, and that was the end of her education. And so growing up, uh, I was one of five of her granddaughters, and for her, her granddaughters were always going to get an education. And she was what I like to call a, um, a social justice um, kitchen table warrior. And so I was strongly influenced by her and other family members who had really strong social justice values and would talk about, listen to, you know, the papers would be spread on the kitchen table. You would go into the house and the ABC radio would be playing. There would be documentaries on at night. The news was always on. And so I was really strongly influenced by those conversations and I always loved them growing up and uh, was lucky enough to have her around for long enough that even as a young adult, we had some really fierce conversations. And so for me, I've always had this strong social justice warrior um, instilled in me. And for me, carrying out that purpose and being lucky enough to have a, a an education and a higher education that's enabled me to pursue that social justice purpose in my career and my life, um, I feel enormously grateful for. In terms of where I landed with education, I didn't know what I was going to become or be. I didn't come. My dad was first in family to go to university. He was supported by um, Sydney Electricity as an apprentice to study engineering. Mm. And so he was first in family to go to university. And so I didn't have a background of people that steered me into particular universities or particular careers or particular courses. Uh, and so I had no idea what I wanted to do and showed up at a time when youth unemployment was really high mm. in university and started off doing psychology and majoring in science. And I hated the psych because I couldn't have an argument. <laughs> there were like these theories and I was like, no, no, you just have to read the theories. These are the theories. And I was like, why can't we have a conversation about this? So I went to the careers advisors, uh, not knowing anything about, you know, how to navigate these behemoths that were universities. I'm like, okay, I hate this. What can I do next? And they're like, well, you've got no career prospects as a, you know, in the, in the sciences. Um, you could become a, I was doing some health subjects, physiology, anatomy. You could become a gym instructor or, or, and then I said, what about humanities? I love history, English, politics, because I could have an argument and a discussion mm. and that whole critical thinking side of things. And they're like, well, you might be lucky enough to get an admin job or become a librarian if you go down that path. And I thought, well, if I've got no career <laughs> prospects, let me just do what I love. And yeah. so that wasn't about, that wasn't a purpose choice right then. That was actually, how do I follow my passion? And so I guess for me, those two things really intersect strongly, purpose and passion. And I took the arts side of things and I thought, oh, I'll be fine. I was, I had a retail job. I was working, still working in disability. You know, I was like, I, I will get work. Um, and then uh, eventually ended up doing a, a PhD because there was a scholarship available mm. for me. Um, I had a first class honours degree. I had um, a ridiculous amount of um, retail and career kind of years of work. Couldn't get a job interview mm. and, uh, wrong, you know, wrong background not the kind of networks and youth unemployment was really high. And so my honor supervisor said, Hey, have you thought about doing a PhD? I'm like, what do I want to do a PhD for? 
Uh, and he's like, just go home and fill out the application. And so I did. And I think the other thing about that is, you know, purpose, passion and people in my life that have, you know, helped to steward um, different decisions, whether that's my grandmother and my family through the social justice piece, whether that's mentors or people who've said things like, actually, you know what, think about doing this. And me then having the um, willingness to give something a crack and and that landed me into a, you know, a really interesting few years still in the higher education space. Well, okay, you mentioned the, um, those P's and you mentioned the P's in a recent pro bono article and one of the P's is principles and you mentioned that principles are based on values and you, you encourage people to ask, what are my values? Yeah. So what are your values? What do you bring to your work particularly? I have always um, had uh, integrity is one of my strong values. I really believe in that. I believe in authenticity. What you see is what you get with me. Uh, when I got my first CEO job, somebody actually said to me that I need to think about how I present myself and how I show up. Uh, and it was a really interesting comment. And at the time, it threw me enormously. And I was quite offended by it because of my background and, you know, the way I speak isn't from somebody that's been private school educated or <clears throat> doesn't come from a particular class. Mm. And so I was sort of deeply offended for a while. But actually my response to that is, you know what, I don't give up who I am for anybody. And I'm really proud of that. And actually this is who, 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 who I am and how do I show up in a way that's authentic enough that I can build trust with you that, we can get to know each other um, and that, you know, we all know kind of where we stand and we can have dignified, respectful conversations from whatever backgrounds that we might come from. Okay, so authenticity is my second one. All right. Can I, before you go on any yeah. further, so how do you go when you meet someone who doesn't want to play that game? You want, you want, to, you want to kind of put yourself forward in that way and I, I um, admire that. I, I particularly in, in my younger part of my career, I, I didn't have that um, courage that you speak of there. So I think it's fantastic, but you might meet somebody who doesn't want to play that game or meet you on those terms, particularly if, if um, in the, you know, the older hierarchical kind of world that we've been living in, um, you know, they, they have that kind of hierarchical advantage. Have you had issues in that area? And if so, how have you dealt with them? I'm really interested because I imagine you dealt with them pretty. <laughs> of course I have, pretty, David. <laughs> yeah, no, well, go on. Look, I, and I think, you know, this is also gendered. Spill the beans, And Christy. there are there are a bunch of women that would concur with me. And then, you know, different people with different types of diversity will have experienced these things in different ways. So I'm sure, you know, different people have these different experiences where those things become challenges. I think one of the things that I think is really important and I love uh, that I can do this and I love that I can see value from where different people come from is that ability to walk in different worlds. Mm. I really uh, see value in people and I look for it and I'm deeply curious, which is one of my other values. And so I really want to understand where people come from, what their backgrounds are. And I understand that different people are kind of socialised and have different norms in different ways. And so sometimes those things then show up in ways that I might actually now look at in, you know, my more evolved state mm. as, well, isn't that really interesting? I wonder where that view comes from. Or isn't that really interesting? What what What's going on there that's making uh, him or her or them uh, so upset I wonder what's happened in your day that's that's made you respond or react or made me feel this way or how do I then respond personally and think when I leave that room, you know, I gave you that example and I was so the example of, uh, you know, how could Christy have a think about how you show up and present yourself and I had to do a lot of work and I had a coach talk to me about this because I was so deeply upset by that and part of that work for me is, well, what does that say about me? And how do I then do work on myself to think about, well, what do I do with that? How do I interpret that? How do I react to that? How could I respond to that in a different and better way? Mm. And I do have this belief of, you know, everyone's responsible for their own, um, you know, we shouldn't let people get away with really bad behaviours. You know, that's really important. And we should talk about culture at some point. Mm. But I also have this other belief around, you know, we're all responsible for our own emotional reactions. And so... That piece to me is really important and it doesn't mean you should get away with treating people badly and that therefore they should then be responsible for having a, yeah. an okay reaction to that. I'm not trying to say that, but I do think about that for myself around, 
well, how do I think about my emotional response to some of these situations? And that's something that I can control. Fascinating. I mean, I, I completely subscribe to that. That's me. Although when you say that, I'm like, gosh, it's so much easier to say it than actually take, oh, take it and do work. it. Right? Ask my wife. <laughs> but um, look, if you're genuinely curious about people, I think it's a huge leadership quality. Uh, and if you're prepared to examine your own life and emotions and reactions, again, I think that is fantastic, Christy. Paul, our CEO here, has a phrase he comes out with every now and again, which is, um, I don't like that person. I must get to know them better. You know, it's this idea that um, you have to dig a bit deeper. Philanthropy, if it's taught me one thing that's valuable in my life above all others, is that you have to strip back the layers of the onion. Mm. What what presents is not the full story. Mm. And if you understand that, your view and perspective uh, you will change, your compassion will grow, your understanding, and um, you'll see it in a very different way. So, um, yeah, kind of defeating your own ignorance, overcoming it, I suppose, and um, uh, and being brave enough to kind of think about your own responses, own your own emotions, and then kind of try and seek to understand mm. other people. They must help you an awful lot in your leadership role day to day. But hold that thought because you hadn't finished your values. You, you, <laughs> so get back to that. What what else is there in the cupboard that so you bring I guess, to work uh, every day? I guess the other thing, so I mentioned integrity, I mentioned authenticity, uh, I mentioned curiosity. Yep. One of the other ones that I uh, think is really, you know, I, I, and I mentioned previously, you know, the social justice piece. And for me, um, that's just such a driver of everything that underlies all of the things that I, I kind of do in my leadership. But the other, um, the other one that I really try is how do I have courage? Mm. Because I think that, that courage and then going alongside, you know, the, those pieces about curiosity, courage is humility as well. And I, I'm there for the work, which goes back to the social justice piece around how do I make one small contribution to the world that's bigger than myself is really important to me, whatever it is. And I think that everyone has the ability to do that, whether that's a kind gesture, it's smiling to someone on the street. You know, people play very different roles in society and uh, together we, you know, we make the world go round and, and can make it a, a better place. And I believe in the ripple effects piece. So, so on the values front, I, I do try with the, the courage piece, um, married up to the curiosity and the humility. And courage, what part does vulnerability play in courage? A lot. You know, I mm. remember being taught years and years ago in a, I, I, this is a very long time ago, some very early professional development thing and decades ago around this whole idea that you keep your personal and your professional worlds completely separate. And it was, it was such a false step for me personally, because, you know, over decades since I've really learned to bring some of that vulnerability forward because actually we are who we are and part of who we are is how we show up. And we as leaders, like anyone in any role, need to show up as humans. And, you know, sometimes I need to come into a room and say, you know what, I'm having a really bad day today. Or other times it's that piece about I'm going to share something that is really personal yeah. um, because we are humans. We can't know people's story unless we ask and we have to give permission to allow some of that to show up and we have to give permission so that... I can have team members who can ring me and say, you know what, my kid's just been suspended. I can't go to this meeting and I need you to cover for me and I need to be able to say to them, you know what, I get it and I'm sorry and I hope you're okay. Go deal with your family. We'll sort the rest of it out. Uh, and I am proud that I hope that my team would also say this, that I can create that kind of environment well, that Christine, will allow people to do it. This brings me to my next question. <laughs> so your background your work experience, your values, all of which then feeds into your work. Um, I'm interested, what, 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 how would you describe your leadership styles? When you add all that together, how would you describe your leadership style? Remember that your staff and, you know, board members or whoever may even be listening. So, you know, I'm interested in your answer. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, huh? Uh, Authenticity was important, right? Authenticity is yeah. really important. You know, what's really interesting about this question, this leadership style question, as somebody who spent years and I still teach leadership, I run Social Impact Leadership Australia with my um, professor hat yep. still a day a week with um, the UNSW. And, uh, but I find this, and I, so I've taught it for many years. I love it. I love living it. I like practicing it. I find that leadership style question really bloody hard to answer. Right. 
Uh, and why, maybe why? because do, it's do you, self-reflective. Do you resent it? Like, no, or? no, not at all. I don't resent it. I think it's a really important question and I will answer. Yeah. So I guess for me, um, my style is I see leadership as a behaviour, not a title. Talking of leadership, you lead the Paul Ramsey Foundation. Um, for people that don't know, so just tell us like, how did the foundation come into being and what is it essentially about today? So the Paul Ramsey Foundation was started by Paul Ramsey. So many people would know Ramsey Healthcare, uh, either know of it or have experienced it directly. So Paul Ramsey started the foundation uh, when he was still alive and um, was a great philanthropist. And Paul uh, incredibly left his legacy, much of his equity to the Paul Ramsey Foundation. So when he died in 2014, it was an incredible gift to the world that he left this amazing legacy. And so all of a sudden, the Paul Ramsey Foundation went from a relatively, um, and in, that's in inverted commas because Paul was still generous um, when he was alive, a small philanthropic piece to one of Australia's largest and indeed at the time, Australia's largest. So uh, it was through Paul's generosity and and I'm lucky enough to still have members on the board that were really close and worked mm. with Paul for many years. And everywhere I go, even last night I was at an event and someone came up and said, I was mates with Paul. And so everywhere I go, I love hearing the stories about Paul's values. And he was a great believer in people and he was a great believer in making sure that people had opportunities. And one of the things that I really love about these stories about Paul and that we're really trying to make sure we continue on in the foundation is to see value in all people. And one of the stories that Paul's quite famous for is people were looking for Paul in the hospital system. You'd find him in a stairwell talking to the cleaners. You'd find him in the kitchen talking to the, the kitchen staff. He really believed deeply in valuing and seeing value and finding value and having engaging conversations with right. everybody across the organisation. You didn't have to be in his exec team. So that to me is something really important and where the Paul Ramsey Foundation is at and going that's really important around that is how do we continue to make sure that we enable people and places to thrive and how do we do that to give people the opportunity um, and address the conditions that might be otherwise holding those people and places back. Okay, so how are you doing that because you've got uh, and people can look at it on the website and other places you've got a clear kind of mission and um, I think quite a strong identity around yeah. this is what we're trying to do. Um, but how how do you do that? How are you tackling or how, how are you trying to um, achieve those type of outcomes and aspirations? Yeah. So the Paul Ramsey Foundation's charitable purpose is around breaking or helping to break cycles of disadvantage in Australia. And when you say charitable and purpose, for those that don't know, um, I'm assuming you're talking about like the hardwired purpose for which it's given that, ch that, that the charitable status and the, and the, the various benefits yes. and concessions that go with that. So that bit um, is, is really kind of hardwired, right? That's, That's a hardwired piece, yes. And the piece that I add to that is, you know, so we want to help and help break cycles of disadvantage mm -hmm. and the, the asset framing part to that, the positive part to that is and how do we work alongside people and partners to enable people and places to thrive and address those conditions. And so how that then plays out is obviously as a philanthropic foundation, we have to partner with organisations who actually are the ones that are doing the hard work yeah. on the ground or as intermediaries or on the system at whatever layer we intervene with. So we have a, a couple of things that we do that. So we hold to the people and places. How do we be clear about what cohorts or groups of people and places we're talking about? And that's where we're looking at those entrenched cycles of disadvantage. And, you know, we have a fundamental belief that the postcode that you're born into should not be a determining factor for the outcomes that you may end up facing. Yep. It's not an inevitability, but we do know statistically uh, that, for example, we have locations where you can go back for decades and similar postcodes will be in those cycles of disadvantage time and time and time again. And yep. as a society, that shouldn't be okay. So, so we, we address things around being clear on people, being yep. clear on places, and then also understand where are those intervention points or key 
points of difference that that can have some evidence base and or we have some kind of theory of change or hypothesis mm. that may mean that we could change direct trajectories, work alongside people to shift that to uh, um, that, you know, thriving, enabling yep. environment. And we know there are things at work. We know that uh, things around the early years matter. So it could be around life course. And we look at the early years because from an evidence perspective, we know that actually between zero and five or even, you know, when you, you know, when mums are pregnant, that, you know, that, that time period is really key. Yeah. So we'll intervene in the early years. We believe in supporting, you know, kids through school age learning. Uh, education is a big focus for the Paul Ramsey Foundation because of its importance in mm. shifting outcomes. And that's where we started mm-hmm. our conversation, David. Uh, employment is another one that is key. And we talk, talk not just about employment per se, but thinking about pathways too. So actually, it doesn't always mean that uh, we might be, you know, our, our long-term outcome is what does a job look like? What does meaningful employment look like? But actually, what does even things like economic dignity mean for people? And how do we help people on pathways towards? So employment is a big one. We also have a focus on the justice system because we know that is both a disruptor and, yeah. uh, and a, an enabler yep. in terms of how you experience that. If you you tap into it, we also have a focus on um, place, as I mentioned earlier, as sort of a, a separate piece uh, to to our puzzle. When you talk about um, trying to get those outcomes, Christy, you you've got your hardwired mission, if you like, right? You've got your theory of change. When you and you and you've got this idea, these are the outcomes we want to achieve. Um, how do you then kind of apply that when you go into the field and try mm. and use your resources? Because, um, of course, you're blessed with a lot of resources, but you'll want to use them wisely. What are you looking for? Maybe the best way I can put it is what are the conditions for success that you're looking for when you look to partner um, with others to try and create those outcomes? Mm. It's, it's such a good question. And it seems like I think when you're not in philanthropy, it feel it may feel like, and I'm somebody who who spent a long time not being in philanthropy. It may feel like it's really easy to give out money, and actually, it is easy to give out money. It's not easy to give it out as effectively mm. and efficiently as what we want to hope for. And it's really important that that philanthropy, and you know, it's been critiqued historically in general philanthropy for you know many years. Um, the importance around how you do that effectively and efficiently and how also we make sure that um, the resources we have can be leveraged best to have the biggest outcome possible. And, you know, you you sort of, also, and I'll get to your practical mm. piece in a second. You also mentioned, you know, it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. If we look at the well, investment yeah. in social purpose, our, you know, philanthropy in Australia is a pin drop when yeah. you look at, and David, you and I have looked at this over many years, the the dollars of philanthropy in terms of as a proportion of what goes into even just registered charities in yeah. Australia. You're like, it's like seven cents in the dollar. Yeah, I was going like, to say, I remember that first report you did yeah. at CSI with the ACNC. It was like, it was 8% overall, but the, the larger the organisation got, the, the lower it got as well. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it, that perspective so, is really important, and, isn't it? Cause, and, 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 the thing, and the thing that I don't want to uh, be misinterpreted by, by any listeners is that I don't think that it doesn't matter. It matters yeah. enormously. I mean, I spent years getting small and large philanthropic grants and they mm. can make an enormous difference. And it's not just the money either, right? It's not just the money. Philanthropy has such a key role to play around, you know, and it talks a lot about risk capital. So we have to be willing to to really lean into that. It has the ability to trial things and test things and evaluate things in ways that might be different that other people don't. You can do amazing things with philanthropic funding. And we also need to think through as philanthropists, how do we best leverage that? So for Paul Ramsey Foundation, in terms of what does it practically mean? Mm. We look at sort of, uh, I guess there's there's three big levers, I suppose, that we have. One is, you know, traditional, obviously, philanthropic funding. We also have added and are looking to increase our social impact investment. So how do we also yep. do blended finance is really important. So, you know, that's effectively, you know, our biggest lever is giving people resources. Yeah. The second one is how do we build and how do we help enable to build capability of people and organisations 
And then how do we actually do the work around influencing? And that might be leveraging those resources. So how do we partner with government? How do we work so that we might front up to government and say, okay, how can we work with you? We'll invest X millions, you invest Y millions, and we can trial this piece. And government might have one particular role to play and we can then do something that is a little bit more risky with our funding or trial something slightly different or work in a slightly different way. The other piece that we can do with philanthropic funding is things like advocacy uh, and how we actually use our funding in different ways to be able to, mm. you know, effectively do that leveraging work. How do we elevate the voices of people with lived experience? We did a great example. piece of work. I was very lucky to do it when we first started at CODA. We, we, um, we did a, a, a almost a farewell tour for Atlantic Philanthropies, um, oh, yeah. Chuck Feeney's foundation. And um, Chris Exley, the, the CEO, um, he said a lot of the stuff they'd done with advocacy, he said, we didn't, we, we didn't, um, we didn't create that change. We invested in the voices of change. Mm. I thought it was a lovely way, mm. way to put it. Mm. But at the risk of talking about advocacy too much, um, um, no, no, that would be my, my that would be my mistake. Um, you've talked about the, there's the, I almost said it, old fashioned grant making there. Yeah, I almost yeah. said the words old fashioned, but there's the grant making model for, yeah. for a foundation but then, of course, that um, as has been talked about a lot more in recent years, that's maybe say again in an old-fashioned sense five percent of your resources every year. You've got your corpus. How you th how do you think about your corpus as a as a weapon of change? Mm. So there is old-fashioned grant making, and let me just finish the previous question, yeah, then sure, I'll come back sure. to the corpus. Yep. So on that, how we actually invest our money in part around those those three things, you know, traditional philanthropy, the more catalytic philanthropy around how we leverage, influence, build, yep. advocacy, those those types of ones. And then the practicalities of that. Historically, and the Paul Ramsey Foundation, remember, is still pretty young yeah. relative to philanthropy in general yep. in Australia and also, I mean, particularly overseas when mm. you look at how old some of the fantastic philanthropic foundations are. Yep. But historically, Paul Ramsey Foundation originally was um, had never taken unsolicited proposals. So one of the things that we've recently introduced is some open grant rounds. I saw that. And the importance of that is we can't is back to that value of humility. Mm. We can't possibly know. And you know, I, I'm a professor, so I am a fundamental believer in evidence. Obviously, I can't yeah. hide that, David. So I believe in in evidence. Basis. And I spent, you know, a couple of decades doing research in what works under what circumstances for who yep. and evaluations, et cetera. And we also know, you know, even if you just look at registered charities, there are around 50,000 in any given year. We can't possibly know who all the best organisations are in all of the different communities and who actually might be the right people who have the most trust in which particular areas to to do the work that's going to get the best outcome for people with what they need, when they need it, at the right time. And so for me, the open for open grant rounds and beginning that has been really important. We've opened in the early years. We've opened one in domestic and family violence and just this week announced one in employment and we've got another one coming in justice. So we're doing, we're doing both that piece around how do we go out and look at the evidence and think about who our partners might be and what we might uh, invest in around traditional philanthropy, but also those other catalytic approaches, mm. as well as thinking about how do we open ourselves up so we can be a little bit more transparent so people can look at, well, actually, I could apply for some funding under this. We can then learn about what's going on um, in different communities with different organisations, and that will help broaden our world around how we understand it. I think that is fantastic. I, I really like it. I like the combination of the humility uh, and the transparency and just giving access to people. Um, it's almost a you know, democratisation approach, right? Well, it is, isn't it? Um, I'm now thinking about you in a new way, by the way, based on what you said. <laughs> I'm thinking, I've got this description of you in my mind, which is a an evidence-based social justice warrior. Is that, does that sound <laughs> about right? You know what? I'm gonna, I, I quite like that, evidence-based social bit, justice warrior. <laughs> I, I, I also would say that I'm, I'm also deeply pragmatic, and also, I fundamentally believe in the evidence and I also believe in testing and trialling different ways of thinking and working where you don't yet have the evidence. And that comes back to my value of being deeply curious 
And so it's it's not a paradox, but it may sound like a paradox. So I'm it's actually making me think you should have been a biomedical researcher. That's what's <laughs> making me think applying for grants. Is but it's that whole thing that I'm super open to new ideas, and actually that's yeah. really important because if we if we only ever looked at what the evidence base was, many of the incredible inventions that we all love and rely on now, even medical science, to your point about biomedicine would never have been invented. And so I think we have to be curious enough and open enough to say, yes, we let's pursue. And there's many things, like if you look at the early year space, it's a great example. There's so many things where the evidence is so clear and we just have to get on with implementing the evidence. And there'll be other things where we can't possibly yet know the answers to what individuals might need on the ground. And the other thing about evidence that I think is really interesting is we might have evidence as to what works under what circumstances for who at different times. And if you go into a particular place in a particular community, actually that might not be what the community wants and needs and is most ready for. Because actually, even though I can say to you that actually access and affordability and quality early years education is absolutely critical to life outcomes, we know that. That's super important and we should as a society, focus on that, make that available. It's one of Paul Ramsey Foundation's commitments and we yep. spend a lot of time and money in that space. And we should be able to go into places and communities and be able to listen to, well, actually as a community for that to actually, for us to make the most of that, we need uh, safe housing or mm. we need, you know, whatever it is that that community might need uh, so we're actually doing work around how we might listen. And we're working at the moment on a place-based strategy to think about mm. how we might go in and work alongside communities in a slightly different way. So we're not coming in with an issues lens, but we're coming in with a listening lens. I kind of think you've answered, uh, coming into this, I had a question for you. I think you've gone a long way to answering it already, but just to give you the chance if there's anything else you want to say. I'm interested in how um, an organisation like yours um, can stay contemporary and at the cutting edge so that you are effective in the way that you deploy your resources and you don't get stuck in a, we do, we do this this way as the world changes around you. So as the world changes, I would expect the foundation to adapt and change as well. What's the process by which you do that? Or, or, or perhaps it's about culture. There's a couple. I'll be see how I got culture into the conversation. Mm, I like that. Nice work, David. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to come back to culture. I've got to come back to corpus, uh, and uh, and then um, sorry, I just lost my train of okay, thought. Okay, question. Culture and cor cor uh, cor I can't even say it. Culture and corpus. But I was saying, oh, how, how do, do you evolve? basically evolve? Yeah. yeah, as the world evolves around you. Yeah, I, I think that's really important, and that's almost that piece around that. In, that that's almost where that leverage point sits, right? So actually, for example, you know, we we are in a recent state of you know everybody's sick of talking about it, but you know the pandemic, uh, and even if you look at what happens in anything that's political, economic, health related, there are a whole lot of things in the context of the world that changes all the time. And it's, you know, if you're in the world of how do we help enable social progress, you have to be acutely aware of what's happening, when it's happening, and how you adapt and evolve to make sure that you can either leverage those opportunities mm. or respond and react to them. My career as a professional trustee is where I kind of started into the philanthropy space. And I saw this running the philanthropy business at Perpetual a lot, was there's another element to that, which is... If you've got a founder and that founder passes away and there may be people who are around who knew that founder, there's a strong attachment and a, and a big drive towards preserving the initial ideals and intentions of that individual. And then over time, the world will change. And mm. there's a real tension. Uh, and I don't mean tension in a, in a confrontational sense, but there's a natural tension between moving and mission drift. And you've got to be able to manage that mm. tension. I saw that in trust that had been around for decades. Mm. Um, there'll be people who want to stay here and there'll be people who want to move. And there'll be a variety of reasons why those people want to move. Some of them might be personal reasons. Others might be based on the fact that the world has changed and needs have changed. You're a young foundation, but is that are you seeing any of that, you know, play out at the foundation? Are, are there any kind of... Is anything that resonates there at all? There are amazing people doing amazing work. And how do we bring together the right people with the right resources at the right time to think big picture about doing that? 
And staying kind of laser sharp on that's the purpose is important because then we're clear about what our role in the ecosystem is. Mm. And those other examples where the world has changed around us still fit within that mission without yeah. it being mission drift. And some of it might be slight stretch. But if I take, for example, natural disasters and I are responding to floods and fires, we know that people who are living in um, communities that are doing less well than other communities are going to be more affected. We know that people with low levels of household resources are also going to be much more affected much more quickly. And you can see that play out in lots of the examples that, you know, we've seen mm. in, in recent history, but also long history, the COVID fault lines report showed up very quickly that those who were already left behind have been further left behind mm. as a result of COVID. So for me, it's that interesting balance between how do you be agile enough, but also be clear about where the boundaries are. And, you know, the reality, David, is, is that we're not always going to get it right. And no. there are moments where we haven't got it right. And so I think that's the other thing about the humility yeah, piece and how do you keep learning? Yeah, yeah. Well, but I... I as a framework to learn, to have almost the permission to learn, I really like the idea of using the values because the values tend to endure mm. more than, say, mm. um, views that an individual may have had. Um, I often thought when I was, again, back at Perpetual, that if, if we were rooted in we, we have to do this, we have to do it this way with the foundation, um, I often thought the person who founded that foundation, usually a successful, wise person as well as a generous person, if they're around today, they would have evolved their own thinking yeah. and they would have been attuned as they were in their lifetime to what's going on. And so they would have probably change too and maybe disappointed to be rooted in one place, right? Yeah. But how do you stay true to the, and honour their their memory and their generosity? I think it's on those the values. values. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Let's move on to what one thing we had. We had we had corpus and culture. Oh, so let's do corpus, that and then yeah. we'll, we'll talk about so you. So let's and, do corpus quickly. Yeah. So the corpus, the key thing for us that's really important around corpus is Paul Ramsey Foundation has committed to investing up to 10% of our, our liquid corpus into social impact investing. And that is incredibly important because I am a fundamental believer, as is the foundation and the board, and we're very lucky to have a great board who support this. Yep. And, you know, Michael Trail's a great pioneer of this and, and a great mm. chair of committing to impact investing. And I think there is great potential to not only use the resources we have to grant and, um, you know, give people those, you know, the traditional philanthropic funding, but also how do you leverage off the balance sheet that is available um, in terms of what's liquid and and how do you actually use that for good? Yep. And I think, you know, the world has evolved, as you know, David, through mm. the work that you're doing in it's, it's quite incredible if you look at what's happened over the last decade or so around, you know, ESG and the increase of social impact investing. I think the potential we have as a society to really grow social impact investing in Australia is huge. And it's something that's going to need a lot of other players to come along with, including, you know, government and other investors. But it's it's a really exciting opportunity, I think, for social change. Have you ever seen that YouTube video? I mentioned it to someone else yesterday. Um, Zarmine Pavri is in the impact space, actually. Um, that video, YouTube video of the person doing the dancing in the field at the festival, um, one of the person comes over after about five minutes, but everyone's kind of looking at them and kind of laughing at them or dismissing them. You've not seen this? And then a couple <laughs> more people come over, but they're almost kind of just kind of having a bit of a laugh. And then all of a sudden there's a crowd of people dancing yeah. and other people start to take notice. And so some of those people get off their kind of, you know, their mats on the floor at the festival and start to dance. Before you know it, the entire festival is surrounded this one person and all of a sudden there's this party going on. And Impact, as philanthropy did for me earlier in my career, Impact feels like that, right? That's how, kind of how it starts. Yeah. And then there's a critical mass and all of a sudden, boom, everyone's there. And um, I think that's – I think I see that happening – in the impact space, as I saw it happen in the philanthropy space here in Australia, which was not something people wanted to talk about 20 years ago. And financial advisors advising clients didn't feel it was their job to talk about personal issues or felt it was their job to make people wealthier, not poorer. Mm. <laughs> Very different to today. And I think we're looking at a different future in the impact space. So thank you for that. Yeah. I, I won't labor it too much because culture. Mm. Yeah. What? So culture, feel free to tell me what you think. Of course, we're talking about you personally, your leadership, and we're talking about the foundation. Um, but let's, I mean, let's, I'll just give you a start of a 10. How important do you think culture is in your work? 
that's an easy question, isn't it? It's critically <laughs> important. Out of zero to 10, it's like an 11. Yeah. I, I think culture's everything because, you know, it's interesting how we talk about organisations but and bureaucracies and institutions in general, I mean. And when you think about it, we're all just groups of people uh, and people are critical in everything we do. And I said to you before that I think leadership's a behaviour, it's not a title or a role. And so I I'm fundamentally believe that everybody has a role to contribute to building, maintaining, strengthening and paying vigilant attention to culture. There's a, a book that I love uh, called The Power of Giants by John Amici and, and I really love one of the quotes in his book, which is, oh, and I hope I get this right. Yeah, I do the same thing all the time. <laughs> people, people make choices, yeah. choices make culture. Mm. And I okay. think that's really powerful because people do make choices and it gives us, it's incredibly empowering because actually... I, whoever I is, can affect culture in every single interaction. And, you know, we've talked a fair bit about values Mm. and then values play out in our principles, which are our behaviours. And so how we behave every day and how we create and evolve cultures is really critical around what you can actually achieve as a group, how much joy you get in turning up to work, how you confront issues that might not otherwise being talked about how you give and receive feedback. It's a, it's in, it takes a lot of work to pay attention to culture. Mm. I fundamentally really believe in it. And I think for me, the impact side of things can only really be achieved if we marry it up to how we also um, develop and and work on culture. Okay. So um, follow up question, just to flesh that out, maybe in a slightly more um, practical level, or a slightly more practical level. Um, so culture, I went on a great business course um, once and I learned something that sounds simple, but I'd not really heard it expressed before in a way that resonated with me. And it was really the idea that as a leader, your job is to create the right environment. And I had previously heard it expressed in terms of, you know, like to, to make the most profits or to do X, Y, and Z, more traditional things. But this idea that your responsibility, your chief responsibility is to create the right environment. And and that environment that exists in your workplace is really down to you as the leader. I'm thinking here more of a CEO, to be honest, um, than anything else. But that really hit hit me between the eyes and made me think, yeah, that it, that is a responsibility you have to take very seriously. And it also occurred to me that if you didn't do it and didn't pay attention to it, the consequences would be significant mm. in, neg- in a negative sense. So, so just make it a little bit more practical for me. Um, culture is very important to you, but what, what, what are you, what are you trying to do at the foundation in your work mm. to create a really positive and effective culture? So. On the analogy front, I, I, I've, I've just got something in my head that mm. I like. So from a culture, you, you know, you mentioned if you don't pay attention to it, it, it it's not a good outcome. Yeah. And I kind of have, have had for some time this analogy in my head over many years and in my current and my previous CEO role, this thing, this idea where if you don't pay attention to culture, it's a bit like having mould in the walls. It just continues to grow and you might not be able to see it, but you know something's not right and everyone's not very healthy, but you can't work out why. And then it continues to grow. And so it's like that thing about it's like it almost needs treatment. Uh, And so so for me, it's sort of like and then I thought more about this and I thought, well, actually, you can also grow it in a positive way. You can almost grow like you grow moss, you know, and how do you feed it and how do you nourish it so that, it, you know, you you don't have the negative side of it, but you have the the positive because, um, you know, culture can be on a continuum and go horribly wrong or be really fabulous. I'm thinking of yogurts and blue cheese and stuff like that now, but yeah, carry on. We could go on with analogies all day, But let me go back to the practical end side of it. So I think for me, I think about that on, on those extreme sides of what happens when you don't and what happens when you do and how you you really do need to pay attention to it. I mean, some really simple things, you know, one of the things that I fundamentally believe in is how do you constantly give really positive feedback? You know, how do I, and how do you do that with some immediacy? How do I come out of a meeting and send someone a note and say, you know what, David, you did a really great job at that. Um, that was an excellent, 
you know, whatever. Or well done, David, on owning that mistake, you know, back mm. to your part in the mess. I think, you know, those things have to be, culture isn't just about calling out when something is great. It's also about how you address things so you create a culture of, and and I, I love, and I'm stealing um, the fabulous leadership um, work of Robbie McPherson here who talks oh, yeah. about safe enough. Because how do you create a safe enough workplace so that actually we can have a conversation and you can show up and you can say, you know what, this went wrong. This is how I'm dealing with it. We can have um, group emails that say, you know what, I'm really sorry, this has happened. Uh, and how do we kind of own those pieces and then learn? And then how do I reinforce that culture so that actually I can say, you know what, David, I'm really proud that you were able to own that. And I think you handled that really well, even if you need support around what you do next about that or how we we do that. So for me, it's about some of those little micro things. And then, of course, there is the um, the daily ongoing, you know, other cultural pieces around how do we find joy in our work? And I think we in philanthropy are so bloody privileged yeah. because, I mean, how good is it to be in a position where you get to work and your job is giving out money? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, what an incredible privilege. And and, and you've got, and, and it's not worth just giving giving that money to someone else. It's the fact that you it's are. It's the impact of you, the work. You, but you also have that um, incredible privilege and responsibility when you're in that position that you're influencing where those resources go and therefore you're influencing the lives and the futures of people and things. So it's, um, there's a, a respect that goes with that enjoyment as well, right? Yeah. But there is a real joy there because it's a, it's, it's a very unusual position to be in. And, Most people don't get to be in it. No. It's so so that is an enormous privilege. And I, I've spent years on the other side where I'm trying to raise <laughs> money and on boards of not-for-profits where you're like, oh my God, how are we going to survive? Uh, and, you know, and that stress of that day-to-day -day stress of like bringing in the next contract. And so we're in this incredibly privileged position and we need to hold it with enormous social responsibility as well because of the implications of what that might mean for the not-for-profits and importantly, most importantly, what does it mean for those beneficiaries around mm. those people and places that we want to play one small role in contributing to. And I think the, the thing about that is, you know, so, so part of that culture is how do you find joy day to day and then how do you also hold it with a seriousness because actually the work that we do, or even though we might be a few steps removed, we have to stay really cognizant of who is the end beneficiary? Are we actually making a difference? Is this actually um, going to hopefully land with an outcome that people and places most need? And again, you talked about that in that pro bono article at the start of the year as you looked ahead to the year um, in the context of saying you've got to really think about your purpose as being helping the beneficiaries as opposed to helping the organisation. It's not about the organisation you work for. It's the purpose the organisation exists for, particularly in the philanthropy and non-profit space, right? Now, we could have – I reckon we could have a 20-minute conversation about that, <laughs> but we're pretty much out of time. So we've looked at your past. We've looked at where you're at now. We've talked about the past for the foundation and, and you know, how it works and, and how it might evolve in the future. But I want to go right to finish this conversation to the end, at least in a career sense, and say – um, to you, if you think about what you're trying to do and what, as a, you know, this kind of crusader and warrior, uh, you, you've been trying to do all your career and what you're trying to do now with this really big job and big opportunity. Um, when you look right to the end of your career and turn back and say, well, this is kind of my legacy. What, what would you like the answer to be? I find that, I find that question tough. You know, and in my head, my immediate response is just like a, you know, she made it count, you know, and I think there is that fundamental piece around, you know, I think the greatest opportunity that we all have is to make whatever impact we can on the people and places around us in whatever way and whatever roles we have. In my current role, I feel this um, enormous um, privilege in having this position and I really want want to be able to make this count. And in part, that is about, you know, how do we play our role? And there are many, many others that will, will work walk alongside to do this. But how do we play our role in helping enable people and places to thrive? How do we start to help shift things? And 
um, demonstrate that we can do applied systems thinking in ways that do relate to or result in, you know, where are those points of intervention? Where are those key levers for change that could have enormous impact on a great number of people, but also realise that there are some small things we can do that are going to affect individual lives as well as those macro ones for me is really important. I would also love to uh, have some influence on that piece around how, and it's holding back to, you know, almost Paul's legacy as well and many people's value in values that come to mm. philanthropy and the not-for-profit space around how we see value in, in all people and we really work hard to come from an assets framing perspective in the first instance and not a deficit one. Right. That, that to me is really important because everybody has something amazing to offer and we can't know what people's stories or backgrounds or, you know, issues that they may have faced, but we can look for values and strengths and contributions to the world. And I would love to um, influence how we might do that better uh, across society. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to end and uh, I could keep going, but at some point... <laughs> At some point, we have to wrap it up. And so I want to say it's been a real pleasure talking to you, actually. And um, I think we set out to have a conversation. I think we, we within the context of a, of, a, of a podcast, we've actually done pretty well there, hopefully. So I want to thank you for coming in and um, wish you all the best in the role because it's a, it's a huge job. It's a it's a huge privilege, responsibility, opportunity, and it, it's a platform to you for you, sorry, to, to, for you to be able to achieve the things you've been trying to do all your career. So the best of luck with that. And thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. And I hope I can do that evidence-based uh, social impact warrior, <laughs> holding humility, curiosity and um, courage well. Well, I'm sure you will. It doesn't <laughs> sound easy, but I'm sure you'll do it. Thanks, David. Thanks, thanks for having me. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. For more episodes, go to the podcast page on codacapital.com. You can also see there our other podcast episodes from the How I Did It series. And if you'd like to get some free insights for the charitable and non-profit sector and for the broader investment sector, then um, head over to codacapital.com insights page. Thank you.